Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. We are allegedly just weeks away from the Macintosh adopting its fourth new CPU architecture. Or is it its fifth? Think back to late 1979 when Jeff Raskin had just begun a little skunk works to create a truly affordable Folklore.org. Scrooge McDuck, 1980, by Andy Hertzfeld. Burl Smith liked doing intensive design work over the Christmas break, so the first prototype of the very first Macintosh sprung to life in January of 1980. It wasn't a standalone computer yet. It resided on an Apple II expansion card with the hardware elements of Jeff Raskin's Macintosh Dream an inexpensive 8-bit Motorola 6809E microprocessor, 64 kilobytes of memory, and a 256 by 256 bitmapped graphic frame buffer connected to a cute, tiny 7-inch black-and-white display. Burl didn't want to waste time designing and wiring up hardware to synchronize the memory of the two machines. After all, none of that would be useful in the final product. So, he used the Apple II to control the memory of the prototype Macintosh, allowing him to initialize the control registers and run small programs with the 6809. A few weeks later, I was at lunch with Burl, and, knowing my appreciation for Woz-like hardware hacks, he explained the crazy way that he contrived for the Apple II to talk with the prototype. He had delegated memory synchronization to the software, the Apple II would hit a special memory address, telling the prototype how many microseconds later to grab data off the common data bus. It was weird enough to make me interested in seeing if it really worked. By now, Burl thought that he had the graphics running properly, but he wasn't completely certain. He gave me a copy of the magic addresses that I'd have to use, hoping that I'd get around to testing things soon. As I often did, I returned to the lab after dinner to see if anything interesting was going on and to work on extracurricular projects. I had some spare time, so I got out Burl's instructions. I wrote an Apple II assembly language routine to do the necessary bit twiddling to transfer whatever was on the Apple II's high-res graphic display to the Macintosh prototype's frame buffer using Burl's unusual synchronization scheme. One of my recent Apple II side projects used Waz's new one-to-one -one floppy disk interleave routines to make very fast slideshow disks. I had just made one full of Disney cartoon characters scanned by Bob Bishop, one of the early Apple software magicians. Bob adored the work of Carl Barks, the Disney artist who specialized in Donald Duck and had scanned dozens of Donald Duck images for the Apple II. I selected an image of Scrooge McDuck sitting on top of a huge pile of money bags, blithely playing his fiddle with a big grin on his beak. I'm not sure why I picked that one, but it seemed to be appropriate for some reason. Andy Hertzfeld, speaking at the O'Reilly Open Source Convention in August 2000. 
and stayed all night one night or up until 5 a.m. getting a picture on the Macintosh screen using the Apple II to poke into its memory. Bob Bishop, he had a slideshow disc of a lot of different images. I just picked one at random, which turned out to be Scrooge McDuck fiddling on a pile of money bags. For some reason, that foreshadows Bill Gates to me. I, I, and ending up taking control of the graphic user interface. I can't remember what, why I picked that one instead. It was another one of Mickey Mouse dancing. I probably would have been a better, more appropriate one. It was starting to get late, but I was dying to see if my routine worked. It would have been very cool to surprise Burl with a detailed image on the Mac prototype's display the next morning. But when I went to run the code, I noticed that Burl's Apple II didn't have a disk controller card. There was no way to load my program. Damn! I couldn't shut the computer down to insert the card because I didn't know how to reinitialize the Macintosh prototype after power-up. Burl hadn't left the magic incantation for that. I thought I would have to wait for Burl to arrive in the morning. The only other person in the lab that evening was Cliff Houston, who saw the trouble I was having. Cliff was another early Apple employee, the older brother of Dick Houston, and an experienced but somewhat cynical technician. I explained the situation to him and was surprised when he started to smile. Cliff told me that he could insert a disk controller into Burl's Apple II with the power still on and not glitch it out. A miraculous feat. You would have to have been incredibly quick and steady not to cause any short circuits and you ran the risk of burning out both the Apple II and the prototype card. But Cliff said he'd done it many times before. All that was required was the confidence that you could actually do it. I crossed my fingers as he approached Burl's Apple II like a samurai warrior, concentrating for a few seconds before holding his breath and slamming the disc card into the slot with a quick staccato thrust. I could barely make myself look. But amazingly enough, Burl's machine was still running. The disk booted up, and I could then load the Scrooge McDuck image and my new conversion routine. Even more surprising, it actually worked the first time, displaying a crisp rendition of Uncle Scrooge fiddling away on the Mac's tiny monitor. The Apple II only had 192 scan lines, while the embryonic Macintosh had 256, leaving extra room at the bottom where I rendered the message, Hi, Burl, in a nice-looking 24-point proportional font. By the time I came in the next morning, an excited Burl had already shown the image to everyone he could find. I helped him reload the image after he accidentally reset the prototype somehow, so he could show it to Tom Whitney, the engineering vice president, and Jeff Raskin, the project's founder. I think Jeff was pretty pleased to see his new computer start to come alive. However, I don't think he was very happy about me giving the demo, since he thought I was too much of a hacker and not someone who was supposed to be involved with his pet project. 
Doug Trigel, who decided that, boy, wouldn't it be great if the Mac could use the 68,000, which was thought at that time to be a little too expensive for the low-cost objectives of the Macintosh. Jeff hated that idea, because he saw it as growing out of control and not being a low-end computer anymore. But Steve loved that idea, that a very, very low-cost computer could have such a powerful microprocessor. What ended up happening is uh, Jeff didn't quite get his way and ended up leaving the team. Thank uh you. -huh.